entertainment, arts, and interviews. The Mulberry Lane Show, brought to you by Elisa Ilana Jewelry. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. He'll have you laughing hysterically over bullion cubes, Cheeto dust, and baking chocolate. Yes, he's Pat Hazel, one of the original writers for NBC's Seinfeld, a Tonight Show veteran, and a critically acclaimed playwright. In fact, Showtime declared Pat Hazel one of the five funniest people in America. And he's returning to his native Nebraska for a limited run of his hit play, The Wonder Bread Years, at the Omaha Community Playhouse, June 13th through 29th. He's here right now to chat about his creative journey, what makes funny, and how you can catch this performance. And he's back with the Wonder Bread Years. Pat Hazel's here. Welcome to the show, Pat. I've never had a musical intro like that. So So you're bringing Wonder Bread Years back to the heartlands. Talk about the show and how is it different than it originally was and what's in store. Well, the Wonder Bread Years is sort of a nostalgic pilgrimage back to growing up to the times where we were uh, coloring outside the lines and riding our bikes with no hands and so forth. And it's a salute to our collective American consciousness, which is the same television shows, the same products, and that sort of thing. And I think one way that is different is probably the last time I did it there, which was many, many years ago, I probably didn't have kids and wasn't the curmudgeonly dad in the story. Uh-huh. I was more the <laughs> the kid complaining that my dad wouldn't stop at every rest stop and look at every roadside attraction and so forth. But So it gives me a different perspective and also watching the world through my kids' eyes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of material has come up just by sort of observing the life through them living it now. Okay. So now do you incorporate uh, yeah. the different perspectives then in the show? A little bit. You know, my kids, I listened to them behind the couch arguing about candy at some time. I don't know if it was Easter or Halloween. And one says to the other, I hate dark chocolate. And the other one says, well, it's still candy. you got to respect that. <laughs> you know? so, so it's very sweet, and, yeah. and yet that's the most important thing in their world at that moment. And there's sort of a pureness to a time where... It's about curiosity and adventure and, uh, you know, abandoned and so forth. And innocence. And, um, yeah, it's really, it really is an interesting place before you sort of step out into the world when your parents are sort of in charge of things. Uh-huh. But I also do a thing where I look at my parents now as they're aging and how they tell stories where there's thousands of details and no information. You know, they <laughs> go on and on. And I find that when I do that, both the audience that's of that age relates to it and uh, sort of a baby boomer relates to becoming that, and uh-huh. younger audiences. It's sort, of, it's sort of a broad net that I cast. Right. My general sensibility is that I wrote a piece that I'm hoping people will see that we're all more alike than we are different. Right. You take a lot of your own personal moments and make them funny and universal. So is that a skill you develop over time, or does it just flow out of you in a way that's entertaining and humorous and relatable? Well, I did find my voice was naturally nostalgic and reflective in terms of the the past and retro material. But I think what I have learned as a craft was how to actually subtract part of the details out of it so that it's more about everybody's life and not so much my life. Okay. Meaning when people come to the show, what they don't realize is that I'm specifically picking family slides of locations that I'm hoping they have been to the four corners of the St. Louis Arch or something, so that when I begin to make jokes about that, it becomes more about their life or their journey. Mm-hmm. It's the art of trying to be more inclusive, mm-hmm. uh, where the audience, when they leave, they're talking about their toys and games and jingles and recipes, 
And that is a way to create something that's contagious. Hitting that specific spot, that's the skill. And did that take you time to learn where that spot is? Well, I think it took me a while to understand that people are more interested <laughs> in themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and also, it's a little bit about the vicarious nature, which is that people want to be taken on a journey. And your imagination and your home addict, and there's a lot of treasures there. So it's, it sort of straddles the line between stand-up comedy and theater, but I think the warmth of some of the material is where the sweet spot is. Mm-hmm. And it's not always super personal, but when I begin to talk about my worst Halloween costume, which happened to be dressing up like Colonel Sanders, they gave away free masks. But my mom, my mom gave me a chicken bucket to collect my candy, and it was a humiliating night. So I'm specific about that, but the uh-huh. goal is for people to remember their worst costume. Right. But when I talk about show and tell, I basically open the dialogue up to the audience, and they tell me hilarious things that they brought and how it made an impact on themselves or their class. And that okay. makes it different every night. Uh-huh, I bet. And so your performers, you know that, Every show, you're surfing a wave, and on that wave, uh-huh. you want to just stay on the crest of that wave and get it right, uh-huh. and you got to deal with the dynamic of what did the audience bring to the show that night? Are they tired? Is their news bad? Is the stock dropping? What's going on? You know, right. so yeah, that's the fun of it. You mentioned the word warmth. Now, do you think that warmth comes from growing up in Nebraska? I don't think it hurts it. We have our fair share of uh, tragedies and other things, but I do think that there's something about the breadbasket, the heart of America, Mm -hmm. that is more well-rounded or Mm -hmm. when I see California lifestyle and, you know, I think not having multiple seasons makes people forget there's a hard time during the year, but having to deal with winter makes you appreciate spring a little bit more, if that makes sense. Absolutely. If you just tuned into the Mulberry Lane show, we're in the middle of our chat with comedian and writer Pat Hazel. He's bringing the Wonder Bread Years to the Omaha Community Playhouse this June 13th to 29th. Tickets are on sale now. And Jerry Seinfeld calls the Wonder Bread Years milk snorting funny. And LA Weekly calls it infectiously charming. You've had such a career. You've done comedy, TV, sitcoms, stage. When did you know? When were you really sure that you were funny? I think fairly early on, I realized that it was funny. I don't know at that time if it was a attention-seeking, you know, defense mechanism. Okay. <laughs> but eventually it became a business. You know, you think it's all just fun and games, but, you know, you have to sit down and be disciplined enough to write. You have to take a risk every time you try a new joke. From being a creative standpoint, I now have peers that are on television or movies or whatever, and you have to write at a higher level comedically because other people are observing the same thing. So you have to kind of have a very unique voice. Mm -hmm. And it comes from, I think there's some instinct in it. You know, some people were talking about taking a staycation this summer, and that word to me is the most hilarious word in the world because... You know, no woman, no wife ever said, yes, honey, let's let's stick around here, you know. Exactly. some cute dude trying to make it sound good. It's almost like telling a homeschool kid, you can have a snow day. Right. You know, it's like, uh-huh. yeah, stick around the house, do whatever you want. You uh-huh. know? When I heard that word, you know, that word itself opens up uh, a series of thoughts or different ideas. Maybe if we didn't talk about people being homeless, but we talked about them being on a on a station, maybe that would make us feel better about <laughs> ourselves or, you know, whatever. Right. So I kind of dance around a topic sometimes uh-huh. and unearth as much as I can. Right. And I have learned from very, very good people that if you stay in those areas and dig a little deeper or 
cast a wider net or whatever, they go eventually find really unique stuff. Uh-huh. You'll hit the gold. I think so, yeah. Sometimes you're three feet from gold and you don't know it. Right, you know? yeah. What did you learn from working on the Jerry Seinfeld show? Well, I learned several things. One thing Jerry told me when I was working on other things was to sink on your own ship. If you have an idea or a story that was worth fighting for, you captain that ship and go down, you know, be proud, go down. If you board somebody else's ship and do it the way they say, then sometimes, you know, you don't have any control and then you regret the choice. So that was one thing. Also, you know, he had a great writing discipline and at the very early stages of creating that show, we didn't want to be derivative of, I don't know, one of the shows were on TV, Murphy Brown or uh, Mm -hmm. Family Ties or something. And his sense was, don't start uh, one oar out of the water, you know, just make yourself the audience, create material that's going to make you laugh and hope that there's another group of people that have the same sensibility as you do. Uh-huh. And I think that just kind of kept the craft afloat a lot longer for everybody. That whole writing crew, was it always, you know, a good group to work with or were there disagreements and creative differences? Well, there always is. I think in any creative business, it's subjective like any art, I guess, what you think is funny or what they don't. I mean, I was so opposite from Larry David, who was sort of the head writer of the show. He was Jewish, and I was Catholic, and I was from the Midwest, and he was from New York. And sometimes I would pitch a story notion, and he'd say, that could never happen. And I'd say, no, it happened. Like, you can take the idea or not take the idea. That doesn't matter. But you can't tell me it didn't happen. Right. <laughs> and, and he would argue, just like his character on television, and, uh-huh. until you just go, forget it, I give up on that idea. <laughs> but I think in most creative arts where you're collaborating, it's a little bit of a birthing process. Right. And like, the actual birth isn't as pretty as the kid that comes out down right. the line. <laughs> Sometimes you just want to forget about that whole process, right? <laughs> yeah, but oftentimes the kid, which is a part of you and a part of them and whatever, turns to be out, uh, you know, to be something that neither one could have done yourself, right? right. So you have to have some maturity when you collaborate uh-huh. because even if you're a great director, you're collaborating with an editor who's then taking pieces of your scenes and putting your movie together, and, mm-hmm. and ultimately that's the last storyteller. Right. And if you're an actor, you have to trust that they're going to pick the scenes that are the best. And, uh-huh. you know, everybody, I think, is giving a little bit into the stew there. A lot of trust in the mix, for sure. Right. Yeah. When you have an act, uh, you know, as you guys know from the beginning of your life, you know, the act is the thing, and you can control the act with the players within the act, mm-hmm. and that seems to be survival technique. But once you start to work in television or film or just mediums that require a lot more people, music video or whatever, mm-hmm. you do have to find a level of trust to let people express their creative things, and hopefully they're helping you know, all boats rise. Right. Is that hard? Like, for the sitcom you were a part of, it was based on... Bunk Bed Brothers. That was your concept. When you brought in other actors and, you know, the film crew and everything, you do have to let some of the creative control go. Was that hard for you, having birthed that whole concept? The good news is is that in that situation, because we wrote the underlying play and we were the creators of the sitcom, we were a part of interviewing the directors, interviewing the producers, and being able to pick people, you know, once we had them, we still had to deal with what they right, thought was cool. going to be right and wrong. Sure. So we didn't have a 100% final say. But when you describe your vision, you know, technically I actually had a more difficulty with the network who thought that having a location like Nebraska wasn't super sexy, right? <laughs> like we had a setting in the old market kind of uh-huh. across the 
street for the spaghetti works there or something, where there was fruit stands and stuff. That was our home garden center. And then the arched windows above was the apartment that the brothers lived in. And, you know, we did come there and shoot some exterior shots and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And it really looked good and it really felt good and we really proud of it. But almost all of their shows at the time, Seinfeld and uh, Single Guy and all these shows all took place in New York and they were all uh-huh. hipsters in lofts and you know, friends and things like that. And they had a real hard time on their Thursday night dial thinking about going from New York to New York to Hicksville to New York. <laughs> that was right. their sense. Okay. And that's how the coast looked at the Midwest. And I kept saying, well, why don't we look at different criteria? Why don't we say we're going from funny to funny to funny to funny? Sure. Not, right. You know, uh-huh. you know, we don't need to use the word Hooterville to try to put a town down. And I would defend Nebraska. That was actually fun where I would say, you know, Warren Buffett's from Nebraska or this is from Nebraska. You know, right. I would say, are these people making a mistake? You know, they seem to be making a, a global situation where... As long as you've got email and FedEx and an right. airport, yeah. you know, there's only certain things you need to survive. And now with the, what I would call the democratization of distribution, you can put your movie up on YouTube or you can do whatever. You can be anywhere you want and right. you can bring a lot of eyes to your product. Uh-huh. You're getting a great behind the scenes look at the TV network industry with Pat Hazel on the Mulberry Lane Show. We'll be right back with more from Pat right after this. Oh, I get by with a little help from my friends. 